Amen. Well, the scripture we're reading this morning is from Daniel chapter 9. We've been going through Daniel for most of this year. Today we're looking at Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. If you have your Bibles, if you can join with me as I read this word. In the first year of King Darius, son of Xerxes, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord and I pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord, my God, and I confess, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commandments and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in the name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes, our ancestors were covered with shame. Lord, because we have sinned against you, the Lord, our God, is merciful and forgiving. Even though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the Lord or kept the laws with he has given through your servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we've sinned against you. You fulfilled the word spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sin, giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he has done, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with the mighty hand and who made for yourself a great name that endures to this day. We have sinned. We have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous act, turn away your anger, your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers, petitions of your servant for the sake of for your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes. See the desolation of city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear, hear and act for your sake. My God, do not delay because your city and your people Bear your name. Amen. This is a reading of God's word. Please join me in prayer. Father, we give you thanks this morning as we come to you. We come humbly. Uh, we come needy. Uh, and we come desperately needing to hear a word from you. So, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. Speak to us through this word. Give us comfort. Give us your peace. Give us your guidance. 
lead us for we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's it's good to be back here again with you all. Um, and it's good to be at the art chair again. I want to thank the worship team, the uh, the sound, the audio people for helping make this happen. We hope that this is the segue into some version of a in-person service. So we're hoping as we perfect this, we'll be able to invite you in at some point, Lord willing. Well, this morning I want to continue on our series. We've been looking at the book of Daniel. And I chose Daniel specifically for this time, this pandemic time. Daniel was written in the time of the exile. It was a, a seriously stressful period. It was a 70-year period in the life of Israel where they were many of them were deported. They were conquered by a foreign power. They were feeling hopeless. They, they did not know what was happening or what the future was about. And God gave us this book of Daniel for times like this. It's written for times of uncertainty. The theme of Daniel that we're looking at is how even in times of uncertainty, we can live by faith and not by fear. Daniel is a model of living by faith over fear. Today we're looking at chapter 9 of Daniel. And here Daniel models for us a prayer of confession. Uh, He shows us how we can be a confessing people. Uh, Today we live in a culture that likes to call people out uh, for any mistake, any sin, though they they might not call call it that, of their past. So we like to dredge up people's old tweets, old videos, old actions. We, We pile on and we ask them to be canceled. Justified or not, we ask them to be canceled. But it's interesting because when it comes to ourselves, we we do the exact opposite. You know, we like to call people out, but for ourselves, we love to put filters on our photographs. We like to hide the worst things about our life. We only like to share our highlights. So it's the exact opposite. We call other people out for ourselves. Hey, we are only going to give the best, the highlights, the filtered. And when we live in a culture like that, uh, it's unhealthy. We're hiding our true selves. And we, we don't allow other people to be forgiven and to be healed. Confessing reverses this trend. If we are God's people, we're called to reverse this trend. Instead of hiding, we're actually supposed to be the ones who tell other people about our ugliness, the things that are, are hurting us and other people. And we do that so that we could we could be healed. We can have restored relationships. Uh, today, what we're, we're going to look at is the idea that when we become a confessing people, we can experience the power, the healing, and the forgiveness of God. When we become a confessing people, our relationships can begin to heal. So today, we're going to talk about confession. We're going to talk about three things about confession. Number one, the road to confession how we get there. Secondly, the dynamics of it, what it looks like. And third, the power, how God can really use that, the power of it. So those three things. And the first thing is the road to confession. Uh, One interesting thing about Daniel is that it's not written chronologically. It skips from, from the present to the past to the future. So every chapter, so it can be confusing. So to help us out, the beginning of most of the chapters of Daniel have a time stamp on it. 
It's just meant to orient us to where we are. In Daniel chapter 9, the timestamp is in verse 1, when Darius was king. Now, this goes all the way back. He's jumping back in the past. It takes us back to chapter 5 when Belshazzar was, um, he was killed. King Darius comes on the scene. He's the next king. He's the king that presided over Daniel when he was in the lion's den. That's that king, Darius. Uh, during the first year of King Darius's reign, uh, Daniel is reading the Bible. He's reading Jeremiah the prophet. That's interesting. This is one of the rare times in the Bible when one biblical author is reading another biblical author. Daniel is reading Jeremiah, which is actually a proof text for the idea that even in the time of the prophets, the other prophets considered other prophets the word of God. Daniel considered Jeremiah, a contemporary, a true prophet, and those were the words of God. He's reading probably Jeremiah 25, meditating on it. What's that about? Jeremiah 25, uh, Jeremiah gives a prophecy. He calls out Israel for their sin, but then he gives them a seed of a promise. This is Jeremiah 25, 11. The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So he reads that prophecy. Jeremiah actually prophesies that Babylon's going to conquer Israel. And he names King Nebuchadnezzar as the one who's going to do it. He gives them a seed of a promise, though, in verse 11, that it's going to be for a finite period of time, 70 years. How long has Daniel been in, in Babylon at this moment? Chapter 9. He's probably been in Babylon 66 years. 66 years. So what is Daniel thinking? He's thinking, I've been here 66 years. Jeremiah prophesied that this is going to be 70 years. So Daniel must be thinking, it's, my time's almost up. It might be time for me to go home. It would be easy for Daniel, reading that, to simply then just wait out his limited time that he has in Babylon. But Daniel doesn't do that. What Daniel does is he first he reflects on what got his people in this mess in the first place. You read the first part of Jan Jeremiah 25. It's all about what Israel has done to deserve this. Their hard-heartedness. How they had forgotten God. How they had lived in an unjust society. How they have belittled God in his ways. And so what Daniel realizes, he's reflecting on all the ways that got them into the exile. And Daniel really realizes if sin is a thing that got them to the exile, he realizes confession is the way back home. Confession is a way back home. I've been listening to... Uh, the album, I've been listening to Taylor Swift's last new new album. Have you guys listened to that? Folklore. And one of the songs on that album, one, one uh, critic was saying, Folklore is the perfect quarantine album because it's an album about longing and being lost. It's about longing and a sense of being lost. One of the, the, uh, one of the uh, songs on the album is called Exile. And in it, 
This is what she says. I think I've seen this film before and I didn't like the ending. You're not my homeland anymore. So what am I defending now? You were my town. Now I'm in exile seeing you out. You know, sometimes a person can feel like a home to us. You know, a boyfriend, a wife, a spouse, even a parent. That when you're with them, you feel at home. You feel safe with them. They're someone you love, you fight for, you identify with. They're your safe place. But what happens when that person, what happens when that relationship ruptures? It falls apart. How do you feel? And she says, I feel like an exile. I'm in exile. I don't have, I'm, I'm wandering. I don't have a home anymore. I don't have a sense of purpose in life anymore. Daniel says we're all spiritual exiles. That's one of the messages of Daniel. All of us have left home. God was supposed to be our home, our safe place, our meaning, our, our hope, our defense. But we've left home, all of us. All of us are spiritual exiles. We're wandering. We're looking for meaning in life. We're looking for safety, a safe place. We're living um, this quarantine. What it has brought out in a lot of us, including myself, is it's got us in touch with how lost we are. We don't have all of our regular distractions anymore. We have to spend a lot of time alone. And in quarantine, in isolation, many of us have come to the realization that we're all lost. That there's a deep emptiness in all of us. Why is that? You know, Daniel deals with that lostness. He feels that. He also looks at it as city, and he he sees how how disruptive, how how lost, how all of them are wandering. You know, we live in a time now when, uh, as a country, as a city, we feel that sense of lostness, don't we? We, we, we sense that sense of devastation. We're living in a time now where there's 8,000 people in our country who are dying every day of COVID. We're living in a time where people feel isolated and alone. There's a lot of division. We're dealing with, a, we're reckoning with a racist past as a country. We're experiencing a lot of turmoil. But more than that, we're spiritually in decline. Uh, churches and churches are reckoning with the fact that so many of them have pursued uh, political influence, money, and numbers, and have forsaken true spirituality in God's heart. What is the way back home? Sometimes we think the way back home, we feel lost, we feel alone, we feel isolated. Well, we just need some inspiration. We need to do some good things, try harder, work harder change of scenery, a new job, a new relationship. But those aren't at the root of the problem. At the root of our problem is that we've left the God that was supposed to be our home. And what I want to tell you today is confession is the way back home. It's the way back to God's heart. Exile is is what we experience when we leave home. And the way back home is confession. So what does that look like? This is the second point. What are the dynamics of confession? When we confess, if that's the way back home, what does that look like? And Daniel shows us he's a model. Daniel throughout uh, this book is a model of faith. 
He's a model for how to live in the midst of exile. When things are tough, when things are uncertain, when your world is being rocked, how do I live? Daniel models that. And one of the key things he models is prayer. In midst of exile, the thing that roots you, strengthens you, directs you is prayer. Daniel was preeminently a man of prayer. We saw that in Daniel chapter, uh, we saw that in Daniel chapter six. Daniel prayed three times every single day. He went back into his, uh, his place. He opened up the windows. He prayed toward Jerusalem three times a day. Prayer was his anchor. Uh, here, Daniel models a prayer of confession. And he shows us three things about confession, three perspectives, three directions of confession. Confession is first upward to God. That's the first thing. Daniel prays, looking, confessing to a great and loving God. It says this in verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Daniel first has this vision of a great God. God is the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the king above all kings, above all powers and authorities. He is holy. He's righteous. But he's also loving. It says this. He says, God is the one who keeps covenant and steadfast love. And that's the thing about God's love. God's love is faithful and it is is passionate. God is a God of promise, yet his love is powerful, is passionate. You know, there are two types of false loves that we can experience. One type of love is all passion and no promise. This is someone who loves, who's passionate about you, who has feelings, he has words, there's passion, but they will only love you as long as they have that passion. When that passion runs out, they're looking for someone else. They're looking for another flame, another person, another encounter. It's passion, but it's not promise. There's another kind of love, which is the flip side. It's all promise and it's no passion. It's someone who's like, I'm committed to you. I'm in this relationship with you. They will show up. They will be there day after day, but the love's not there. Passion's not there. They're not passionate about you. Is that love? Is that a love you'd want to be in? But look at God's love. What does he say about his love? He says, it, 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 I keep covenant. I'm, I promise to be with you, but I have a steadfast, hesed, passionate, absolute love for you. That's God's love. It's both faithful and it's passionate. You know, that tips you off to what, what confession should be about. When you confess your sin, the thing about it is that you're saying that not only have I sinned against a creator, but I've, I'm sinning against someone who loves me the most. That should draw you into confession. What, what draws you into confession is you know that you're hurting someone who loves you infinitely. Uh, God is the one who loves you in an infinite, passionate way. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He says that let the the love of God be the cords that draw you back into him. The love of God, the passion of God 
is the cords that draw us back to him. Like, God, I've, I've left the one who loves me so much, absolutely, infinitely. Daniel realized he directs his confession to God, but secondly, he reflects on himself. This is the second aspect of confession. It's personal. In verse 5, Daniel actually uses five different words to describe his sin. When he first says, we, we've sinned, we're going to get to the plural later, but he says, we've sinned. That word for sin literally means missing the mark or falling short of what God desires from us. Sometimes we think sin is just doing bad things, murder, racism, hatred. But sin is more than that. It's falling short of God's ideal of justice, of mercy, of helping the most vulnerable people in our society. You you might say, well, I haven't done anything really bad. I haven't hurt anyone or hated anyone. But have you loved the most vulnerable people in our society, like the immigrant, like the poor? The marginalized, what are you doing actively for them? Are you falling short of God's ideals? Secondly, he says, we've rebelled. We've slapped God in the face. We've, we've, we've set up an alternate kingdom. We said, God, you're not my king. I have, I'm setting up an alternate kingdom where I'm the king. And I make the choices. And I'm going to make you smaller And I'm going to make my own kingdom, my priority, my glory. That's going to be the great thing, the first thing. We've rebelled against God. Third, we've turned aside from his commandments. His righteous laws and commandments which were made to guide us into a life and a city that flourishes with justice, with love, with his shalom. And more than that, finally, we ignored all of his prophets. Uh, God tries to warn us. He sends pastors and people, and he speaks into our conscience. Whenever we're far away from God, God always speaks to us. He always tells us in a thousand different ways that, man, we're, we're far from home. This is not right. We're not in the right path. But how many times have we ignored that voice, the conscience, people in our life speaking to us, encouraging us to come back to God? We've ignored his prophets. We've ignored him speaking to us. And we've become complacent. And we've, instead of shunning sin, we've made friends with it. We've normalized it in our not life. Uh, my wife, she teaches um, English, to, uh, English to graduate students, uh, some of whom are non-native speakers. And she was telling me about this thing called a fossilized error. A fossilized error is an error that you made so many times, but because you've made it so many times, you think it's normal. So she has a, a PhD student, a brilliant, very fluent in English in every way, but she keeps on making uh, very simple grammatical mistakes. She would say things like, the spaghetti are ready. Are the money on the table? Simple subject, verb, non-agreement. But she's made it so many times, she thinks that's normal. In fact, when she hears it the right way, she thinks that's the wrong way. She wants to correct that person. She's fluent, but she's made this error so many times, she doesn't think it's an error. Don't we do that with sin? We've sinned so many times that we've normalized it. It's no, we don't think it's wrong. 
It might be lying. It might be pornography. It might be harboring subtle racist thoughts and attitudes. It might be cursing someone out in our mind. It might be a host of different things that we've done so frequently, we no longer think of it as sin, even when it is. Confession involves acknowledging all the things that we do. Saying, search my heart, O God, and try it, and see if there be any harmful ways in me. And lead me into your way everlasting. That's what confession is. But here's the final thing about confession. It's also corporate. Notice that when Daniel confesses sin, he's not just confessing his own sin, but the sins of his nation. In fact, he uses the I, but more often than that, throughout this whole chapter, he uses we. Verse 7, he confesses sin of all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel. He also confesses the sins of his ancestors. Why does he do that? You know, we tend to privatize our sin. Our sin is just my sin. But Daniel's like, no, I confess not just my sin, but my nation's sins, also my ancestor's sins. I was not present for any of those things. Yet why does Daniel confess that he was not present? In fact, he probably did not partake in any one of those things. We know Daniel's a righteous man. Why does he do it? There is corporate, in the Bible, there is such a thing as corporate responsibility. For instance, in the book of Joshua 7, Achan, he stole something that was devoted to God, but God holds his family and his tribe responsible. Achan did it. God holds the whole tribe responsible. Why is that? Well, the family and the tribe was responsible for raising Achan, for discipling him, for teaching him. So God, in some sense, holds his whole tribe, his family, responsible for his personal sin. Tim Keller, on his article on justice and racism, says this about the idea. Sinful actions not only shape us, but the people around us. And when we sin, we affect those around us, which reproduces sinful patterns, even if more subtle, over generations. So as in Exodus 20, verse 5, God punishes sin down the generations, because usually later generations participate in one form or another in the same sin. Throughout the Bible, God punishes not just generation, not just people, but generations after generations. Why is that? Well, Keller says it's because generations usually participate in the same sins. Think about Abraham. He had a problem with lying. He has children who has children who have problems with lying. Jacob is known as a liar. He cheats his own father and mother, skips town after cheating and lying to his brother. We see the sin of favoritism being passed on in that family from generation to generation. And when we sin, we perpetuate that sin, not only in our family, our generation, but the generations that come after it. We call that institutionalized sin. Some people will call that systemic sin. It's, a, it's the idea that our sins affect other people. One generation affects another generation. That doesn't mean that we have to participate in it. We can't stop the flow of it. It's called confession or repentance. But we do acknowledge the effect of sinful generations. And we are called to confess not only our sin, but the sin 
of our generation, the sin of our nation, the sin of our country. And to understand that we often can be participants in it. What if we became a confessing people? You know, what if in our relationships, we were, uh, whenever we had a conflict, we confessed our own sin first? Uh, What if we were very quick to open up about our own lives? What if every day we set aside some time to confess our own sin to God? What if we had people around us that we confessed to? James says that we should do that, that we should confess our sins to one another. We should pray for each other. What if that was the the tenor of our life? Well, here's the final point. When we do that, when we become confessing people, uh, we can, this is the final point, experience the power, the presence, and the forgiveness of God. The reason Daniel confesses uh, his sin for himself is that he realizes, and behalf in his nation, when he confesses his sin, that God is rich in mercy. And that is the hope of confession. It says this in Daniel 9, verse 18. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Daniel realizes that he confesses his sin because he knows that when he does that, God is going to forgive him. He's great in mercy. He's great in mercy. The promise of God in Jeremiah, Daniel, and all throughout the Bible is that there is no sin that you can confess that God won't forgive. There's no sin so great that God can't forgive it because God is great in mercy. He's merciful. It's a part of his character. And Daniel knows that when God hears his confession, he will answer. Look how fast God answers Daniel's prayer of confession. This is in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier version, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. It says that as Daniel was praying, God interrupts his prayer. He's confessing his sin, asking God for forgiveness. And even in the midst of that, God interrupts his prayer. An angel, Gabriel, faithful Gabriel, interrupts Daniel. What does he say to Daniel? Daniel, he says to Daniel, he gives him a word of, of, of grace, also a picture of hope. And one of the things that we see here is that God is so quick to hear us. You know, whenever you confess your sin, God is quick to hear you. He's quick to forgive you. Whenever you confess your sin, God is like a father who runs toward you with his arms open wide. He's been waiting on you. He is so quick to forgive you, to embrace you, to bring you back home. Gabriel gives Daniel just this word of grace, but then he gives him a vision. Daniel, man, every chapter in Daniel has to have some kind of dream or vision. This is no exception. I didn't read this portion, but Daniel is given this enigmatic yet very clear vision. This is what Gabriel says to Daniel. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. 
Daniel's given a number. 77. Some people think it's 70 times 7. Some scholars think that. But there's been a ton of ink spilled on what those numbers mean. But let me give you the uh, too long didn't read version of it. 70 times 7. What is the significance of that number? Well, 7 is the key number in the Bible. God created the world and rested on in 7 days. It's a number of completion. 70 times 7, regardless of what it specifically means, ultimately means... Uh, a perfect period of time, a finite, perfect period of time. And God says, in that perfect, finite period of time, I'm going to come. And here's these wonderful promises. I'm going to atone for all of your wickedness. I'm going to bring in an everlasting righteousness. This is in verse 25. No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. God says, I am going to do this amazing thing where all of your sins, I am going to atone for it or make it right. Atonement, you can break that word down into at one mint. I'm going to bring two parties together to make it right, to make you whole. I'm going to remove all of your sin and all of the heaviness. And I am going to give you in its place an everlasting, permanent, forever righteousness. Well, that's some good news. And the question is, when is that happening? And in that verse I just read, it's going to happen through the anointed one, the king. The Messiah, that's what that literally means. And he's going to come into a specific city, Jerusalem. He's going to make that happen. When is that happening? Well, we, we know in the New Testament, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. And we know that in one week, one seven-day stretch, he came in specifically to the city of Jerusalem. And he has, he, on the cross... He atoned for all of our sin. He made it right. He took that wrath, that punishment upon himself. And when we, when you call on his name, you are given an everlasting righteousness, a perfect everlasting righteousness. Uh, we said that Daniel jumps all from the past to the present to the future. His prophecy is also past and future for us. Jesus didn't make it right on the cross in his resurrection. But we await the final day when Jesus will come. And when he comes again, he is going to take us back home. When he comes on that final day, he will give us an everlasting righteousness. Right now, we have an imperfect righteousness. Right now, we struggle with sin and temptation. But one day when Jesus comes, we will no longer struggle with any sin anymore. All of our sins will be done, paid for, forgiven, thrown into a city. See, we will have a perfect righteousness, which is 100% absolutely pure. And we will only always do what is loving and true and beautiful. Every word that you speak will be beautiful and true and lovely. Every thought that you think will be of God, of his truth, of his people. Every word you speak will be truthful and lovely, lovely. And one day when Jesus finally comes back, 
where you finally get to home. You know, we said that we're all exiles. Even now, even if you know Jesus, in some sense, we live life as exiles. But the Bible says one day we'll finally be home. Uh, when Jesus comes back, we'll, we'll finally have that perfect, everlasting righteousness. One day we'll finally have that. You know, as we close, one of the biggest problems in life is that we constantly doubt God. We make God small. And we also think that God is angry with us. But this morning, I want you to see and picture God as a God, as a father who loves you with an infinite faithful love. Sin distracts you, and it's like the clouds that keep you from experiencing the love of God. God always loves you, but what sin does is that it's the clouds that keep you from seeing the love. This morning, confess your sin. Turn away from it. It does not love you. It will always use you. It's always temporary. Experiencing the love of the Father who loves you with a faithful, infinite love, who's given you his Son, Live in his light. Live as God's confessing people until we finally get home. Please join me in prayer. Father, we give you thanks this morning as we come before you. And God, we do acknowledge that we all live in exile. We are all wandering around looking for something else. And Father, we confess that we've often chased sin thinking that it was that something else that will give our life meaning and pleasure, thinking that this thing will love us and fill us. And Lord, we confess that all of those idols are empty and they're false and they've left us thirsty and hungry. And we give you thanks, Lord, that you do not forsake us. And we give you thanks that, Father, you love us with this perfect love. Father, this morning we receive your love. We thank you for Jesus, who in him we have forgiveness. In him we have an everlasting righteousness. So, Father, this morning we seek you. Help us to live as confessing people that are humble, that we can confess our sins, the sins of the people around us, our generation. But, Father, we confess that because we know that we know that sin blesses uh, curses generation after generation, but we know in you, Jesus, that in you, you can now bless us generation after generation. Father, you give us a promise that the promise is not only for us, but for our whole household. And we pray, God, that the blessings that we have in you would extend to our families, to our friends, to our city, generation after generation. We no longer have your curses, but your blessings. We give you thanks that you are with us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.